Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. I am your host, Dr. Tana M. Session, organizational strategist, HR consultant, author, speaker, and all-around OD organizational development person. So I am here today with two special guests, and I'm really excited about today's episode. There's going to be part two. So I want you to make certain if you come and you listen to this episode, you come back to listen to the second one as well. They're both going to be just as good, if not better. So I am here today with Miss Joan and Loki Mulholland. And I'm going to have Miss Joan introduce herself because I cannot do it justice. I've read the bios, I've read all the information, but I want you to hear it directly from her. So Miss Joan, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to everyone and tell them a little bit about who you are. Well, I'm an Arlingtonian. I've been in Arlington, Virginia, just about my entire life. And um, I got active in the student civil rights movement back in 1960. And um, I'm still active in what's going on. I just can't march anymore, but I can talk. And so that's how I spread the word and encourage people to get involved. So she glossed over a lot. She glossed over a lot. Well, she glossed over a lot. So oh, okay. I got okay. I got five sons. Loki is my bad boy. Right, right. <laughs> but so by the time she was 19 years old, she'd been involved in about three dozen sit-ins and protests when she joined the Freedom Rides and was put on death row. And uh was on the clans most in Mississippi. Well, of course. It's on the clans most model list, hunted down for execution and at the Jackson sit-in, she was the March on Washington, uh, Seven of Montgomery March, the Meredith March. So she's uh, probably, you know, has been called the, you know, I've called her and I've heard other people say at this point now, because I guess they picked up on it, but she's kind of the Forrest Gump of civil rights. Um, you name a person or an event and she's probably connected to them or, or to it in some fashion. So that's my mom. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, like that that Olympic star and all that. I met up with him. Yeah, that's a that's a Jesse Owens story she's talking about. Oh, okay. I, so, I I was trying to remember this person's name, and I was telling the story, and I was like, I can't remember, so I called my mom, and I said, Hey, mom, nineteen thirty six Berlin, the Olympics. She goes, Oh, Jesse Owens. I'm like, Yeah, that's it. Thanks. And she goes, Yeah, I've got his autograph somewhere. I'm like, Wait, you met him? She goes, Well, of course. I'm like, Well, yes, of course, because everyone meets Jesse Owens. Mm-hmm. That's mom. I want you to introduce yourself to everyone as well, right? So tell everyone who you yeah. are. All right, yeah. He's so, my bad boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm her favorite son. She's got five boys, but I'm her favorite. Uh-oh. Um, and, you know, you know, my name's Loki Mulholland. I'm the executive director and founder of the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation, which was created to end racism through education while preserving, sharing, and continuing my mother's legacy. Uh, Emmy-winning filmmaker with, you know, I don't know, I'm working on my 10th documentary now. Wow. Um, and uh, we just keep on keeping on the work. Right. Yeah. Um. So, Miss Joan, how old were you when you first decided to get involved in civil rights? Well, I first um, knew that I would when I was about 10 years old. And I was down visiting grandma in rural Georgia. And my girlfriend, I played with every summer. We snuck off and went where we weren't supposed to go through the black neighborhood. Um, dirt road. We're talking dirt roads all around in this little place. Um, 
And it was when I saw the school for the colored, that being the polite term, then the colored kids, it was just a shack. No running water, no electricity, no glass or screens in the window, um, just wooden shutters. And I knew out the other end of town was the fanciest building for miles and miles around a brand new brick school for the white kids with all the amenities. Now, this was back before Brown versus Board and all. Mm -hmm. And I knew this was not doing what we learned in Sunday school about treating people the way we want to be treated. And I knew then, though I couldn't have put it in words, that when I had the chance to do something to make things good for everybody, equally good, I would seize the moment. And that came with the student movement. And how old were you when you started? With the student movement? Um, I was a freshman in college, what, 19? 18. 18. 18. Okay. What school? Uh, Duke University, where Mama insisted that I go because it was well-known and um, probably because it was segregated. Mama was from rural Georgia mm -hmm. and a product of her environment. So um, the students at North Carolina College, as it was then named, came over one evening to pretty much a secret meeting um, Sunday evening and talked to us about the um, demonstrations in town in moral and legal terms. And then they up and behold, asked us to join them in the dem demonstration. So we did. And that led to the picket line. It led to the lunch counters twice and then to the city court and ultimately to the Supreme Court mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who overturned it saying demonstrating was freedom of speech. And did you have any concerns or hesitations getting involved in civil rights as someone who identifies as, uh, at that time, a young white woman during that time? Uh, no, but I knew mama wasn't going to take to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. How was that explained? Or did you explain what you were doing? <laughs> um, well, the school administration, the um, dean of women, when we got back to campus, we were to go to her office and she asked if we'd called our parents, um, those two white girls that were in it. And she pointed to the phone and said, call your mama. Okay. And apparently the only thing that kept us from being kicked out of school was the university professors organization said they'd go on strike if they expelled us. Wow, that's great. So tell us about your first civil rights protest. What was that like? Take us back to that day. Oh my, yeah, it was so long ago. I don't really remember the details, but um, it was just holding a picket sign and walking up and down the street in front of I, one of the drugstores mm -hmm. with the lunch counter. Mm -hmm. So this was before the sit-in. This was just starting off with picketing at first. Well, before I sat in, but this the um, North Carolina college students had sat in. Or they'd already done sit-ins, but in Greensboro, it kicked out off. You know the uh, the uh, A&T four there, mm -hmm. February first, nineteen sixty. So this is following close on the heels of that. Okay, and so what was going through your mind, Miss Joan, during that first sit-in that you participated in? Because you had done the picketing, you seen the other students uh, participate in the sit-in. At some point, you decided. You're going to be participant? Well, I joined them with the sit-ins when they wanted us to. Okay. And um, we knew we were going to jail. Okay. But that's about all I can I don't really remember. I mean, it's been a good while ago. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but being in jail, you had this, uh, I mean, you were still a student at Duke. So there was particularly a professor you guys kind of joked around with, I mean, in regards to about your tests and so forth, your pop, his pop quizzes. Oh, yeah. So we were, while we were doing the demonstrations and all, and we were planning some more. And I told this professor who was known for his pop quizzes that, well, if he gave, I was going to probably be in, in jail when he had his next, um, my, my next class with him. If he gave one of his pop quizzes, could I make it up when I got out of jail? And he laughed and said, oh, no. I'll bring it down to you in the jail cell. You can't cheat in there. <laughs> and he laughed. But there was no pop quizzes. Okay. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well to, to kind of consider, you know, these are students. And yeah. you know, students, you know, they're, they're making good trouble, uh, you know, as, as John Lewis used to say. Yeah. But, um, Mom, there was an incident in the jail where you had to check off uh, your race. Yeah. Black, white. Asian other mm. and so we sort of decided the whole gang of us male and female that we would all check other and get arrested on a Friday and refuse to make bond until Monday and we just party all weekend all locked up in the same cell <laughs> sounded pretty good to us uh-huh as they say, three hots and a cot. So you got three meals and a bed. <laughs> uh-huh. And we do what the spirit said do with that bed, yes. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> they were young teenagers. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> college. Well, you know how college kids are. Oh, yeah. You might remember. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but so, don't ask and don't tell. Mm. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no kissing and telling either. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Miss Joan, how many sit-ins did you participate in? Oh, I don't know. That many? Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well over a dozen, maybe two dozen, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. Did you personally experience any physical violence? Um. No, I think, you know, that Southern chivalry protected white women from from the violence, but folks around me were getting it, mm -hmm. particularly the guys, yeah. And how did you mentally or physically prepare for the protests and for the sit-ins and knowing that you may experience at some point some physical violence? Well, we talked about nonviolence, and we if you don't have your nonviolence on today, um, stay back at the church because all the meetings are held in churches and, you know, maybe make posters or mm -hmm. run the old mimeograph machines to make stuff to hand out. And, but that was about it. Yeah. You, you had to have your nonviolence on. And we talked about nonviolence and Gandhi and all that, but if, Hey, um, nonviolent direct action got India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka out from under the British Empire, you know, it was pretty, worked pretty good. It might help us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the fact that there was an option for those who felt maybe today was not the day that I think I can be nonviolent, but I still want to participate. So I'll make posters. Yeah. Well, I say for everybody on the front lines, there's mm -hmm. got to be somebody having their back, driving the cars, making the phone calls, 
um, you know, talking to the press, this, that, and the other. So there's a role for everybody. Someone's got to cook us some food. Yep, true. And your mugshot has become somewhat iconic. Um, That's what my son says. Yeah, you copying the boy. Oh, okay. <laughs> so how many times? How many times have you uh, were you arrested, and what was the the longest amount of time that you spent in jail? I think I was arrested six times, but um, I was held for um, contempt of court once, and that may or may not count as an arrest. And I sat in the wrong section of the um, courtroom, don't you know, wow. with my buddies. Mm -hmm. And what um, was the rest of the question? And what was the longest period of time you spent in jail? Um, two and a half months with the Freedom Rides. But, like, I didn't have anywhere to go or any money to go. And I was, it was in Mississippi, and I was going to be in Tougaloo College in the fall. So it was free room and board for the summer. That's one way to look at it. <laughs> wow. Um, and were you ever scared during the protests or when you got arrested? No. I say that fear paralyzes your brain and keeps you from thinking what you need to do in the situation. And um, it's counterproductive. So I just don't mess with fear. Wow. Even yeah. at that young of an age. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah it's striking. There was a um, when when they were at Duke, I, I when I was doing a documentary called An Ordinary Hero about my mom's story and the student movement, I, I, I talked to her her roommate from Duke, Lucia, and said, you know, is there anything you might be able to add? She goes, no, well, not really. The only thing I really remember is when we got shot at. I was like, oh, okay, I never heard that before. And so I called my mom up. I said, did you get shot at at Duke? She goes. Oh, yeah, I guess we did. And I just don't remember. I was like, you don't remember? And she goes, well, you know, after a couple, three times, you lose track. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, these things start to blend together, apparently. <laughs> and what were some of the stories that you heard growing up, um, you know, being the son of Miss Joan and someone who was on the front lines for so many years? Yeah, well, we really didn't hear a lot of the stories specifically. Um it was my mom's friends, these civil rights activists would come to town or there'd be the New Year's Day parties and things like that. Um, or like we for know. school. Can you share names? Anyone we know? Uh, well, um, Ed King. Um, it, it matters who you know in Mississippi, you know. Oh. Um, well, the Ladner sisters. Ladner sisters, of course. Um, Salter. Memphis Norman. Memphis Norman. Um, but these were just college buddies. Yeah. Telling college stories, you know, so I mean, who wants to hear their parents talk about old their old days type of thing? And that would just happen to be their norm. Mm -hmm. um, so that was just rather routine. I, I tell people, you know, it's, you know, of course, we knew about Martin and we knew about Malcolm, but my mom's house, it was always about Medgar. Mm -hmm. And that was because that's who her friends, you know, hung around. That was their leader, you know, in Mississippi, Medgar Evers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, you know, a, a different perspective, if you will. And we had the photographs and things from the mom's scrapbooks. And Oh, you snuck in my closet and got into those scrapbooks. Yeah. So anyways, uh, but yeah, so that stuff was there. Um, but it really didn't hit home until I think probably high school when we opened our new history books. And, and there was the Jackson sit-in. Mm -hmm. I was like, what's, what's mom doing in a history book? Right? I was for a picture. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Um, that just kind of started to take it to the next level. And these were, 
these, these amazing people we were hanging around, you know, we were just family friends. Um, that was just normal. Yeah, pretty awesome. And Ms. Joan, how were you treated by the police during your, your time in jail? Well, being a white female, I was treated pretty good. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any real problems. And they were trying to intimidate us for the most part, particularly with the Freedom Rides. But I was a white Southerner. I knew their game. I knew what they were up to. So it didn't intimidate me, mm -hmm. though it certainly did the Yankees that came down. Okay. <laughs> but the, the trip to Parchment Prison, you know, uh, was a little harrowing because of the unknown factor in the back of that paddy wagon. Yeah, it was a narrow two-lane road up through the Delta, not too far from where Emmett Till was lynched. And um, the driver pulled off down a little dirt road, stopped at, I guess, his friend's house to show us off and probably a pit stop. But we sort of thought we might get killed. Oh, wow. Him and his buddies might do us in. But you got to die sometime. So better to die for a cause you believe in than getting hit trying to cross the street wow yeah i can imagine that must have been very scary but you know you have that tenacity and you were determined and like you said you didn't operate out of fear so that helped to yeah. keep you grounded tell us a bit about your career journey so what happened after you you did you graduate college like what happened after the sit-ins what happened i had a couple of temporary jobs one at the smithsonian and one with um the Civil Rights Division, Department of Interior, then moved to the Department of Justice. Oh. And um, I was just typing. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I did, you know, I graduated with honors, graduate record exam, excellent scores. Um, but all the scholarships were for, for guys, you know, this was back then. And then I took the federal entrance exam and I got an outstanding score. But, oh, we don't hire women. They just get married, have babies and quit. So wow. I was a a, a typist and um but in both of those jobs um smithsonian oh do you know where we might be able to get some picket signs or burnt crosses oh yeah let me make a couple phone calls i got them for them they've been exhibited and with the department of uh, justice under roger wilkins who's head of it um he might ask me do you know any they, they worked on working out trying to work out reconciliation in towns where there was problems brewing you know anybody we can contact in that town you know like i knew all the big wigs mm -hmm. and um what was the other thing he wanted me to do oh, oh stokely and some of the um black power folks and you know they were having a little march from ben's chili bowl down to the white house and roger sent me out to talk with them see if they had a place to sleep and to eat he knew they would know me no matter how much they were supposedly anti-white right. and they'd, they'd talk to me. And um, I'm sure if I, I had said they don't, they aren't taken care of, Roger would have placed a couple phone calls and got them, you know, food and a place to sleep. And turned out the um, minister at the, um, what's called the president's church where our former president stood up holding a Bible oh, yeah. at that church. Those folks were taking care of them, of the civil rights guys. So, at no and was it when I was in college or just out? No, it was when I was in college that I got the bright idea of a sit. No matter what that movie Selma says, 
um, I had the idea of having a sit down in the White House. And I, I wasn't part of it. I didn't get arrested in it. But I organized it, no matter what the movie suggests. Didn't have anything to do with Dr. King. He wasn't part of it. So Johnson didn't call King to stop it. Can you tell us more about that? That's something I um, didn't think about. <laughs> well, I had the bright idea because we had been picketing in support of people trying to get the vote in Alabama, as I recollect. And um, we got to take it a step further. So let's, since we're sit-in students, let's have a sit-in in the White House. And um, back then you didn't have to have passes and all that to go in the White House. You just got in the line and went in. So it was a little chilly. Folks had on their coats and under their coats, they had their picket signs and they got in the line and went in. And then when they got to one of those important rooms, you know, um, sat down on the floor and pulled their coat back and pulled their signs out. And they weren't arrested. That would have been, you know, banner headlines, but they were pulled up to their feet by the Secret Service and taken out of the White House grounds. And it barely got any mention in the um, local press. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was so very that was bold. Good. What? I said that was certainly very bold. Yeah. And then I worked at the, um, well, it was when I was in college, too. I spent the summer of 63 working in the March on Washington office um, in, in, in Washington. And the day of the march, I was... Um, up at the press tent handing out information to the press but I didn't march wow. what was that day like for you it was interesting um it was nice to be down there and see all the big crowds because we were afraid that the um president would stop the trains and buses before they got to Washington so when we came out and saw the buses pulling up to the mall that was a good day and the crowd just grew and grew and grew and um, then just before the speeches, they had a van or something and moved the people in the press tent up to where we could hear the speeches. And um, it bugged me then, and it still does, that um, the speeches had to be censored ahead of time, reviewed, so they didn't say anything offensive that would upset the, the president and power structure. And John Lewis was going to say, we're going to march nonviolently through the South like Sherman marched through Georgia. That was too radical, had to go. But Dr. King, who is remembered for his I have a dream bit, that was just an add-on to what had already been approved. That was not on the approved list. And so we were not happy with that. And furthermore, I think at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march, um, his call for action uh, how long, not long. That was way better than that pie in the sky dream. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Wow. And are you still currently involved in civil rights after all these years? I travel around and run my mouth and try to encourage um, youngins to, or anybody to yeah. get out there and do something for an issue they they see. I say my generation took care of segregation by law, but it didn't take care of the underlying discrimination. And now we recognize or call out at least so many more forms of discrimination, religion, native language, 
physical disabilities, gender ID, all that stuff. We we just see it so many more ways. Yeah. And definitely. we got a long way to go. We do. <laughs> and as someone who's been doing this work for so long, what keeps you motivated and inspired to still go out and talk about it? Well, it's just the thing to do. It's doing doing what can make us the nation we should be or make us make the world the place it should be. There's another motivating factor, Mother. And Go was, on. There was a summer of 1964 with Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. Yes, that that did. I was almost killed. I think it was when was it? Late May of that year. Yeah. And the folks, the car I was in, we were let go because they were planning to kill us. It turns out to stop Freedom Summer, and 64, and they, um. The leader of the opposition party in the legislature of the country of India had been arrested the week before in Jackson, going to a restaurant in support of, and got arrested in support of the blacks in Mississippi. And so the, the Indian embassy in Washington was upset with this and complained to the State Department, and the State Department passed the word down to the powers that be in Mississippi to leave the Indians alone. Well, we had an all, all the passengers in this car were white. Uh, the driver was from Pakistan, which is considered white. And we had gone to a meeting in Canton, Mississippi, which was extremely racist to the point that white civil rights workers weren't, didn't go there. And we were, went to a big mass meeting and left before the curfew, got followed. We got to a, turn off on the road and got boxed in with, I think, a truck that was waiting for us. And they came back with crowbars and all and got a hold of Hamid and hitting him. And we started yelling, don't hit him. He's from India, India. And we kept yelling, India. And Hamid was not happy to be from India because their countries were basically a state of war. Mm -hmm. But it saved our life. And then... Just a couple weeks later, um, the three civil rights workers were were killed. Yeah. Um, around Philadelphia, Mississippi. Now I had given I knew two of them. The Schwerners, when they came to Mississippi, I had they came out to Tougaloo, which was where everybody came. It was ground zero in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. And I had given them their orientation, what you need to know as a white person working in civil rights in Mississippi. And then they went on to Meridian and set up a civil rights office and Cheney worked there. And when we were going from Jackson over to um, Atlanta, driving over, we would always stop um, at their office for a pit stop and maybe just sleep on the floor if it was late. And so then to have these two guys that I knew killed that that was hard, and I don't think I could have said anything to the Schwerners that would have made any difference. I think I had it covered, but yeah, still they died. And um, so I say, well, I always have to do a little bit extra for them because they can't do anything anymore. Wow, wow, that's powerful. And you know, many people hopefully know this story. I know that I've seen the movie, and I remember reading about it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm getting chills just hearing you tell it to know that you knew them and that you gave them orientation. 
um, to prepare them for the work that they came to do in Mississippi. And that's one of the reasons why you still do this work is in honor of them. So that's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Loki, anything we're missing here before I wrap up and shift gears? Um, I want to make certain that we cover everything that you think is important for us to know about your mom's history and connection with civil rights and the work that she does and, and did and continues to do. I think it's important to understand in, in regards to that uh, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner story is that um, my mom slightly alluded to it that um, that because they failed to kill them, it was just you know a couple three weeks later they killed their friends instead, and so because they were originally going to kill my mom and and the others in that car to help you know to stop Freedom Summer to send out the word if you will, I I, I think there's yeah we we talk about them them being kids you know these are, these are college kids. Um, doing this. And I think it's remarkable to understand that when we do this, this work, um, no matter how hard it might seem, or just, you know, the, the, how large the hurdles might, might appear, that uh, they did something, they, they, they made the impossible possible, that they truly ended legal segregation. Um, you know, they, they had a plan and methodically went about, you know, executing on it. And, and they did it. And these were just ordinary people yeah. um, who just had a vision on, and a determination like, like no other we've seen. And, but the fact that, you know, again, to come back to this idea that they're just, you know, ordinary as they come, that it, it gives me hope for all of us that we can actually make a difference. And, but we don't have to do what my mother did and her friends. You know, we just have to do what, what we can do, um, take the gifts that we've been given. There, there is one last story I think is worth sharing. It's my it's one of my favorite stories. It's a light it's a lighthearted story. Okay. You know, my mom went to went to Tougaloo College. It's an HBCU. Um, she's you know the first you know white student enrolled there, and she's just coming out of Parchman Prison. So she's in on death row for two months or so, and then is had already been enrolled at Tougaloo, but she's arriving and it's her first night. So mom, you could take it from there. Well. I was a little extra pale and I was wearing what we called a shorty back then, a very short nightgown and it was very pale colored. And Mother Nature called me in the middle of the night. Back then they had the restrooms down in the middle of the hall in the dormitories and I was tiptoeing down. The lights were dimmed in the hallways and Mother Nature had called a girl at the other end of the, of the dorm and she was tiptoeing down and she saw me and she screamed bloody murder. She thought she was seeing a ghost. Well, she startled me and I screamed back. But in the end, Mother Nature won out and we made it to the restroom. And I think by morning, every girl in that dorm knew there was a white girl around. That is funny. <laughs> As she's telling the story, I'm having a vision in my head and it's just like it's playing out hysterical in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's Loki's favorite story of my college days. That's his favorite. <laughs> it reminds me of that, you know, again, you know, it's just normal people. Normal. Ordinary experiences. I mean, this is besides the fact that, you know, at Tougaloo, I mean, you know, the Klan's coming up and burning crosses on the campus and shooting up the housing that's down by Counterline Road and stuff. So, I mean, all of this, but you can have these moments of these students, you know, just being students as well. Yeah. And so so you transferred from Duke to this school, to HBCU? 
Well, I didn't want to go to Duke. Mama had insisted. Um, so I had dropped out. I was out for a year. And then I thought, well, maybe I should go back to school, you know, get a better job, da 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 And I thought, well, this was right after Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes had integrated the University of Georgia with riots and tear gas and all that. And I thought, this is not integration. Just a couple of colored kids under court order having to go through this. If integration is real, it's got to be a two-way street. Maybe I should apply to a colored school, but I talked it over at the fall conference, SNCC conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, with the, the leadership, and they agreed it was a good idea. And somebody said, well, if you're going to do it, you may as well go to Mississippi because those students haven't done anything yet, meaning they haven't had any sit-ins. Maybe you can help them get started. Well, Tougaloo was the only college in Mississippi that was nationally accredited, like if you wanted to go to graduate school or something. Um, it's the only one colored kids could attend. So I applied to it and was accepted in spite of the fact that my high school in Virginia very pointedly refused to send my transcripts to that school. Wow. Well, Tougaloo understood what that school meant and accepted me. It said, well, we'll take you on your Duke transcripts. They were good, so I got in. And don't you know, 62 and a half years later, thanks to Loki's friend, the superintendent of the Alexandria Public Schools, talking to his buddy, the superintendent of Fairfax County Schools, finally, 62 and a half years late, my transcripts arrived at Tougaloo. Oh, no, you're kidding me. No. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> Better late than never, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> never too late Not to that change. I intend to study anymore. Go back, you know? right? No. <laughs> and so you graduated from there. Yeah. Nice. Good. All right. So before we get into the second part of the interview, I want to give people the opportunity to know how they can connect with you. So Loki, do you want to share information on the foundation and the work that you're doing? And then we'll switch gears and go to the second part of the interview. Yeah, sure. And no, I appreciate it. Yeah. So people can, uh, well, you can find us all over social media and on Instagram and definitely, and we actually have a TikTok channel. It's under my name uh, where my mom tells our stories as well. Um, but then we have our, our foundation website, uh, thejtmfoundation.org. And uh, the work that we're doing there is we have the films, uh, professional development with educators and curriculum and and, uh, and our micro scholarship program, which we provide uh, money to HBCU students. And we work directly with them. So we kind of basically bypass the schools because they make it so hard to give the money, let alone get the money. Um, so we said, you know what? We're just gonna work directly with the students. Uh, every week we give out $250 to an HBCU student and uh, let them do what they, what they need with it. You know, either buy food, books, gas, you know, blow off some steam, you know, for self-care. Party time, yeah. And we don't police them that way. You know, it's just like, hey, you know what? You, you need the help, you know? And and we've gotten, you know, amazing feedback from that. Um, students really appreciate it. We actually had one student recently said that, I asked him, what, what did you do? And he said, well, we had, I got some groceries for myself. And then I saw that my neighbors, these two elderly ladies didn't have any, uh, needed some groceries. So I bought some for them. That's you know, those sort of things. Uh and it's it's you know one of the ways we're we're working to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but notice the fraternity signal behind you. So please share which fraternity is that. 
And I, your mom's a uh, sorority the, sister, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. What's well, this the greatest, greatest fraternity in the world? Omega Sapphire Fraternity Incorporated. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 in due acknowledgement, today is the Founders Day for Alpha Phi Alpha. Okay. And it wasn't Alpha that helped my mom get her transcripts. So a nod to the Alphas. Nice. <laughs> and Miss Joan, which, which sorority are you a member of? Delta Sigma Theta. Okay. <laughs> I love it. And you? I'm not one yet. <laughs> I'm holding on. I'm holding on. I came very close to Delta and then some technical stuff issues happen, but we'll see what happens in the future. Technical stuff, your grades? No, no. Letters of recommendations and the fact that I'm a lot of my work was done in New York and I was applying for a California chapter. So it was oh, like okay. that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But you got the right color on at least. So uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Besides, it's all good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is going to end our first interview, everyone. I encourage you to come back and check out the second part. Um, this is where we're going to talk more about the work that's being done now. What do we need to do now around civil rights? What does the country, what do you as individuals, what should the young people, people who were Miss Jones age in the 60s, what should you be doing at this rate in your life in regards to moving civil rights forward and really making certain that we're taking the country in the right direction? So I'm your host, Dr. Tana M. Session, and thanks for being here for another episode of Stop Being the Best Kept Secret.